Hello and welcome on in for a special supplemental episode of Dogs in Autumn, the history of American football. Yep, one more. I'm happy to be here and of course very happy to have you here as well. With this episode, I'll briefly cover the history of the Super Bowl. It seemed appropriate given the glow of Super Bowl 57 is still fresh, and the development of the biggest game of the sport is a fascinating story that goes a long way to explaining some of the things that make football so unique in global sports. As always, we begin before the beginning. The origin of the concept of the Super Bowl lies, as do most football things in the college game, with the advent of postseason bowl games in general. A bowl game is a postseason format unique to college football, which until recently refused to adopt a tournament or playoff-style postseason and instead preferred one-off invitational exhibitions similar to friendlies and other sports, with strict participation requirements. We'll absolutely cover bowl games in greater detail in a future episode, but for our purposes today, just know that this is the origin of the term. Bowl had come into common usage to describe any major football game by the time the Super Bowl came about. Now in the college game, these bowls aren't used to determine a champion, but by the 1960s, the NFL, now approaching 40 years of age, had experimented with a number of formats for naming one. They began in 1920 with a system that went by winning percentage at the end of the season with ties excluded. Yes, Ted Lasso, you could and still can tie in American football. But there was a really glaring problem. At this very early stage of development, the NFL wasn't nearly what it is today. Teams were mostly independent. Crucially, it wasn't unusual for teams in the NFL to play a different number of games in a season. Some played as few as six in the inaugural 1920 season, and some played as many as 20. Of course, this led to a lot of disputes and controversies. As one example, the then Chicago Cardinals, now Arizona Cardinals, are the official NFL champions of 1925, despite one game on their schedule having been organized at the last minute specifically for the purpose of bettering their standings, against a team partially composed of high school players. This was tempting because their closest, and it was very close, competition for the title were the Pottsville Maroons, who had been retroactively suspended from the league for playing an unauthorized exhibition game against a non-NFL team in another NFL team's territory, with territory not even being a practice that the NFL had yet adopted. This proved controversial, needless to say. Pottsville went on to make themselves a trophy despite the suspension which today sits in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The first true postseason game was held at the end of the 1932 season because the Chicago Bears and Portsmouth Spartans found themselves with identical winning percentages. The league decided the best way to name a champion would be to play an extra game. This makes sense. Football and its fans have a long-held, strong preference for deciding outcomes on the field rather than by elaborate systems of points and standings, and this may be the moment that line of thinking truly takes hold. There was one problem. Football season ends in winter. At this time, there were no professional football teams in the South, nor really anywhere outside the Northeast and Midwest. It was a very regional sport at the time. The only stadiums the NFL had access to that made sense for what would be the biggest event in their history to that point were all bowl-style stadiums and fully exposed to the elements. With one exception, Chicago Stadium. It was built for the NHL Chicago franchise, which meant it was built for hockey. So while it was indoors, the playing surface was much smaller and not made of grass. The NFL solution was to hold a game on the small, bare dirt surface with some modified rules to accommodate the size difference. 
One of those rules was that forward passes could be thrown from anywhere behind the line of scrimmage, which later spread to all other levels of football and remains true to this day. The Bears won that game, by the way. It proved so popular, the NFL decided to break into divisions the next year and hold the NFL championship game every year from then on. We now have our postseason. The NFL would carry on tinkering with the format year over year for just shy of 30 years. They introduced sudden death overtime to decide division title games in 1940 and migrated that practice to the championship game itself in 1946. The thing that really accelerated the NFL toward the Super Bowl happened in 1960, though, with the birth of the American Football League. Several would-be competitors had emerged during the first decades of professional football to attempt to compete with the nascent NFL, including several under the name American Football League. The NFL had either absorbed or outlasted them all. But the new AFL was different. It had better funding than prior competitors, and it was led in part by future American sports titan Lamar Hunt. It had launched with a crop of young, innovative coaches and quarterbacks that, especially for the time, seemed to turn football from rugby in slow motion into an acrobatic, passing-oriented fireworks show. In its few short years of independence, the AFL managed to sign an impressive amount of talent, as well as secure broadcast deals with ABC and NBC. Teams from the two leagues regularly engaged in bidding wars for players, and the rate at which contract values were increasing was starting to be considered unsustainable. The AFL had exploded onto the scene with money and innovation, and had done so in large part by focusing on Western markets long ignored by the NFL. To end the bidding wars and maximize the value of both leagues, a merger was obvious. It only took an act of Congress to make it happen, but we'll cover that later. Once they were shielded from antitrust concerns by the United States government, the AFL-NFL merger could truly begin. And to settle it up the American way, it had to begin with a game on the field. The AFL-NFL championship game was the name of the matchup in its first two iterations. Not nearly as much pop as Super Bowl, but representatives of the merging leagues didn't feel that way at the time. Lamar Hunt had been calling the matchup the Super Bowl in private meetings all along, but it wasn't until he was quoted in the Kansas City Star that the media picked up the name and ran with it. Among other names considered were Merger Bowl, which is terrible and would have been very short-sighted in my opinion, and The Game, which would have conflicted with much more well-known at the time Harvard versus Yale and Michigan versus Ohio State, both of which are also called The Game. Yes, those are college teams, but keep in mind that at the time, the followings for the NFL and college football were what much more similar in size than they are today. The explosive growth that led the NFL to eclipse college football was a process that wasn't yet complete, and in some parts of the United States, frankly, still isn't and may never be. But in 1968, the AFL and NFL officially hosted Super Bowl III and the 1967 and 66 Green Bay Packers squads were retroactively declared Super Bowl champions for the first two matchups. When the AFL's New York Jets, led by quarterback Joe Namath, beat the Baltimore Colts, led by Johnny Unitas in Super Bowl III, the writing was on the wall for the future of professional football in the United States. The AFL and NFL completed their merger in 1970, and there would be no more competition. For a while, at least. The first two iterations of the Super Bowl were won by Vince Lombardi's Green Bay Packers. That feels very fitting and only adds to Coach Lombardi's reputation as the sort of granddaddy ball coach. 
is your favorite coach's favorite coach, and probably his favorite coach's favorite too. And the trophy is named after him. No big deal. But the Packers' early dominance soon gave way to a remarkably competitive series overall, punctuated by dynastic runs that seemed to rise and fall with the decades. The first such decade-defining dynasty was that of the Pittsburgh Steelers in the late 70s led by quarterback Terry Bradshaw, which featured four Super Bowl victories by 1980. The 80s belonged to Joe Montana and his San Francisco 49ers, also with four Super Bowl wins by 1990. In the early 90s, the Buffalo Bills made an unprecedented and as yet unequaled run of four Super Bowl appearances in a row and lost every single one. But for the most part, the 90s was mixed. San Francisco continued to be potent, and Steve Young led them to another Super Bowl in 1995, but the Denver Broncos also had two Super Bowls later on in the decade with John Elway under center. However, when I think of the NFL in the 90s, I think of the celebrated and infamous run by the Dallas Cowboys that included three Lombardi trophies and at least one broken television at my granddaddy's house. But as the millennium turned, the NFL turned with it. The last 20 years of the Super Bowl have been largely dominated by one team and one quarterback, the New England Patriots led by former quarterback Tom Brady. That Tom Brady is formerly of the Patriots is significant. He won another Super Bowl with his next team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, to make it seven for him personally. But the end of the Brady years in New England seemed to have, at least for now, ended the Patriots' time at the pinnacle. The future is, as always, unclear. But as I mentioned, and for reasons we'll definitely address in the future, the NFL is exceedingly competitive compared to most other sports leagues. So in talking about any, quote, dynasty, I'm intentionally and probably unfairly obscuring a lot of other champions just for the ease of my own narration. For example, while the Patriots' unprecedented 21st century run may or may not be done, it produced six championships in approximately 20 years. But that means there were around 14 in that time they didn't win. In the half century and change since its inception, the Super Bowl has grown into what amounts to the United States' largest secular holiday, depending on how you feel about what a religion is and how you feel about July 4th. 113 million viewers tuned in to watch Kansas City snatch their second Super Bowl with Pat Mahomes under center, good for the third highest rated event in American television history. Globally, though, the numbers are much different. The NFL has a novel metric for gauging the international audience called reach. The reach of a broadcast is defined by the number of viewers who watched at least one minute of the game. The NFL estimates Super Bowl 57 had a, quote, reach of 40 million viewers outside the United States. That metric feels a little disingenuous to me, but for comparison, a similarly squishy figure for the 2022 World Cup final between Argentina and France had the global viewership at 1.5 billion, including the U.S. Like I said, the source for that figure is fuzzy at best, but even with the respective organizations clearly fudging a bit in both cases, you can see the difference in scale. Why am I pointing this out? To me, it's crucial. What I'm doing here is telling the history of American football and one of the most important things to understand about it, regardless of how you come to it, is that it is incredibly marginal. It has enormous, quote, reach to misappropriate the NFL's metric, and that a massive proportion of the world's population is at least vaguely aware of it, 
but outside of that vague awareness, its actual share of the market for attention in global sports is rather small. The tension between its marginality and its notoriety, its incredible wealth and its limited appeal, sits at the heart of the sport and is invaluable for understanding it. Thanks for sitting with me through two supplemental episodes. I really hope they were worth exploring for you and I really enjoyed going deeper. As always, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at dogsandautumn, all one word, or email me at dogsandautumn at gmail.com with your comments or suggestions. In the next episode, we'll pick back up in the chronology of American football with the spread of the earliest forms of the game down from the Northeast and Canada into the Midwest, the American South, Texas, and California. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.